Happy Memorial Day weekend to everyone. Paula and I are going to take the day off, but it's a perfect time to remind you of one of the most frustrating mysteries in Ohio. 45 years ago this week, Judy Martins disappeared from the campus of Kent State University, vanished without a trace. Here's a rewind of that episode we did on the case. And we'll meet you right back here Wednesday for a brand new story. with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. So I hear we're going to your alma mater for this one, Paula. Yeah, Kent State University. Ah, all right. Actually, this takes place in May of 1978, and I started Kent just three months later. But if I'd heard of this case back then, I'd forgotten all about it. So I'm going to make up for that by doing my part to make sure Judy Martins is not forgotten. Oh, okay. So it's been 41 years since Judy Martins disappeared from the KSU campus. And, you know, while investigators spent years searching for Judy, conducting lie detector tests, even employing a helicopter at one point to scan this area for a, a possible body location, there was no evidence of foul play, and in 2000, Kent State Police even destroyed the file of the case, saying it was old and it technically wasn't even categorized as a crime. Hmm, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, crime or no, I'll never understand the destruction of the investigation case files. Seriously, how hard would it be to just put that box away or digitize it? Right. I mean, that doesn't take any space. That's ridiculous. But, you know, the people who knew Judy, they say there is no way she voluntarily walked away from her life and spent the next 40 years ignoring the wedding of her sister, ignoring the deaths of her parents, ignoring the births of her nieces and nephews. Even without evidence, a whole lot of people are pretty sure Judy somehow, somewhere, died at the hands of another. So let me tell you Judy's story. Judy Martins was the big sister in the Martins family, the oldest of three children of Arthur and Dolores Martins. They lived on York Street in Lorraine County's Avon Lake. And Judy was pretty close to her siblings. They were, there were only three years that separated them. Judy graduated from Avon Lake High School and enrolled at Ohio University in Athens. But two years later, she wanted to be closer to home. For her junior year, she transferred to Kent State University. In 1978, she was living on campus in Ingleman Hall, where she was a resident dorm advisor with her own room. She was 22 years old, majoring in art, minoring in women's studies, but her real goal was to become a therapist or a counselor. Perhaps also noteworthy, Judy Martins was stunning. She was petite at five foot four inches, model good looks with raven black hair and hazel eyes. Well, on May 23rd, 1978, Judy started the evening by going to dinner with fellow resident advisors. They were celebrating the end of the year. The five finished dinner and went to one of their rooms where they exchanged gifts, took pictures, and promised to stay in touch. The gathering broke up around 10 p.m., but Judy wasn't done for the night. She went to Dunbar Hall to visit friends. Apparently, she intended to play some kind of practical joke on one of them because she went in costume. She wore a curly red wig over her dark locks, a brown and yellow plaid blouse, blue denim culottes, a beige trench coat, large sunglasses, and brown boots. 
Well, about 2.30 a.m., Judy left Dunbar Hall to head to her place at Engelman. The buildings were only 300 yards apart, maybe a five-minute walk, but Judy never made it. Nobody knew that for a couple of days. Since she lived alone, it took a while for her absence to register. The following day, Judy was supposed to go home to Avon Lake to get her new car. She was planning a trip to New York with two friends that long holiday weekend. When she didn't call home by Friday, Mom Dolores started calling Judy's room every hour. Clearly, something was wrong. That call was never answered. And then on Friday, May 26, a classmate of Judy's officially reported her missing. It was two days after she was last seen. And the university called her parents. The family hurried to the campus. They went to Judy's room and found it looked like she had planned to return. There was money in her room. Uh, She had been wearing her contact lenses, but her eyeglasses were still there, and her makeup. Uh, Judy would never go off without her makeup. Well, the initial investigation, it was hampered by the fact that it was a holiday weekend. Most students had left the campus. The family was also disappointed after meeting with the university president. They left with a feeling that authorities were downplaying her disappearance because they didn't want the negative press. The family insisted Judy wouldn't have left on her own. She was happy. She was involved in campus life. She volunteered as a counselor at the campus's pregnancy information center. And she was a good student. No way would she leave without taking her final exams. She had broken up with her boyfriend of five years recently, but they were on friendly terms, and he passed a polygraph. Police searched for her. They interviewed a couple dozen friends and classmates. They checked the banks of the Cuyahoga River. They walked through downtown Kent with pictures of her, passing them out and asking if anyone had seen her. They sent photos of her off to other police departments throughout the state in case somebody else had seen her. They even consulted a psychic who told them to search Towner's Woods in Franklin Township. That's the township that surrounds Kent. And that search produced nothing. I mean, they even borrowed a National Guard helicopter fitted with infrared scanners to search for a gravesite or a body. After Martins disappeared... There were reports of sightings, students who thought they saw her here or there, but no sightings were ever confirmed. One person said Judy was seen at a garage sale in Kent, saying she planned to hitchhike to Mexico. Well, that seemed ridiculous. Who would go to Mexico and not take their money or their clothes or their eyeglasses? Right, and then just saying that at a garage sale? Oh, I'm going to hitchhike to Mexico. You know... You got to wonder what's going on in the head of somebody who would do that. I mean, Mm. clearly that was a punk move. Authorities also briefly looked at Ted Bundy because he had killed dozens of co-eds across the country in the 1970s, but they confirmed he was physically in jail at the time Judy disappeared. Then there was this really strange incident in 1983. Cleveland police arrested a woman who looked an awful lot like Judy. She gave the name Judy Martinez and gave police Judy's birth date. Hmm. Well, Avon Lake police had her do a sample handwriting. 
And they wrote in a report that the sample indicated a 95% match to a sample of Judy's own hand. When the family arrived to meet her, Judy's mom thought it was her daughter. She thought, well, she had aged quite a bit. Clearly, this woman was dependent on drugs. But the rest of the family said, no way. The brother said, Judy was petite. She had tiny hands, and this prostitute had large hands. And Judy's father, he didn't hesitate. That's not my daughter, he said. In a really chilling moment, as the family prepared to leave, the woman told them, Judy Martin is better off dead. Well, the mystery only lasted a couple of days. They got dental records from Judy and from the prostitute, and they didn't match. Oh, okay. Yeah, the person in custody was not her. But wow, I mean, to be using the name Judy, have the same birth date. And your mother. And even your mother sees a resemblance. That's, yeah. That was a crazy, crazy moment. I was like, okay, maybe this is her. I thought so, too. Well, now, there was one suspect that got some serious attention. It was a man named... William John Posey Jr., and he is serving a life sentence in North Carolina for the murders of two women who bear resemblance to Judy. In 1978, he lived in an apartment that was about a 10-minute drive from the Kent State campus. Back then, he used the name John T. Scorpione. Hmm. But he never admitted to the crime, and there was no evidence to connect him. Judy's family said university police told them they destroyed Judy's case records in 2000. Like I said, they were old files, there was no evidence of a crime, and it met their guidelines for getting rid of, of documents. Hmm. But you know, this, the 70s was a bad era for a woman to disappear. There weren't online databases of missing persons, and frankly, adults who went missing didn't often make the newspapers at all. I mean, adults were allowed to walk away from their lives. And unless there was physical evidence of foul play, such disappearances ended up becoming more like local curiosities than a statewide or national interest. But locally, the school and Kent community was very much interested in what happened to Judy. I found an article in the Kent Stater two years after she disappeared in which a Kent resident personally offered a $10,000 reward for her recovery. And Judy's siblings, they make the rounds with local media, you know, every milestone. On the 40th anniversary of her disappearance last year, uh, they met with representatives from several outlets talking about what it's been like um, and saying they've, they've accepted that it's likely she's dead, but it doesn't lessen their need to know what happened and where she is. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's a time period where the FBI behavioral science was just getting started, and there was a lot of serial killers back in the, just uh, like you said, Ted Bundy. Right. You know, and that's probably the age group where he would definitely, you know, predator on. And this case has really caught the attention of online forums, you yeah. know, of, uh, you know, Reddit and Web Sleuths and places like that, where people are just really determined to try to figure out what happened to her. Yeah, or without the original case, it's going to be kind of tough. That's crazy. Well, let's talk this case over with tonight's armchair detective. 
Tonight we have with us Teresa Hill Rush from Cuyahoga Falls, an Ohio Mysteries listener. Hi, Teresa. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, most of our armchair detectives really don't have a personal connection to the case that that we're discussing, and that's true here. But there was something about this case that interested you, Teresa. When we invited you to be an armchair detective, what was it about this case that tugged at you? It was, I think for me, it's, I am in this age bracket right now where all of my, my, me included, my son just finished his first year at college. All of my friends, kids are going off to college or at college. And so this really tugs at me because of, of the nature of where it happened. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Uh, we have done, I think we're probably scaring a whole lot of parents because we have done several episodes now on kids who disappeared from college campuses. And uh, I, I hope, you know, people don't think that it's normal for this to happen. But. No, I, I agree. In fact, when it was exam time for my son, I made him promise he wouldn't get amnesia and just disappear on me. So, <laughs> yes. You know, it seemed to be the theme of the 50s, so I needed to make sure he got through it exam was. week and came home to me. So, <laughs> They have not claimed amnesia in this case yet, so there, there is that. You're right. You're right about that. You know, one of the tough things here is when there's no evidence of a crime, no smoking gun, bloody knife, signs of a struggle, threatening letter then there's a greater chance for it to fall through the cracks. I mean, Kent State Police felt comfortable destroying the records on this one since it was never classified as a crime. Is that is that hard to accept? Yeah, I have a really hard time with that. I I just feel like, and, and I can, you know, in doing some research, I can understand some of the theories that at the time that Kent State was going through, they were trying to rebuild their name and really didn't want any more negative press that they had already had. So I could see them wanting to just very quickly move this on and just as if it never happened. That's really how I feel that this went personally. Yeah. Why don't you tell us, you know, the points of the case that really stuck with you? Sure, absolutely. So the first thing I'm just having a hard time just really wrapping my head around is that she was just going from one dorm to another, 300 feet, a three to four minute walk. I mean, really something could happen in just that three to four minutes. And, um, and then for them, when they finally start looking and researching and seeing if anything looks, you know, peculiar or um, to see that her belongings were all still there, her money, her IDs, her glasses. So those were just kind of the first set of things that stuck out to me that this, this just happens so quick. And, right. and, I don't think she just left on her own accord. I think something happened in that three to four minutes. I, I truly believe that somebody was involved in this. Um, 
It's weird when you think like you're standing at one building, you can see a building 300 yards away, Absolutely. and you're thinking, between here and there, I'm going to get snatched. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. It is. It, that is a really hard, and that is probably the part that has stuck the most with me from all of my research. It just happened so quick. It's just devastating. And then when I started to think about, you know, the, the whole idea that she just left town. She, she didn't just leave town. I don't believe by any means she did. She was so close with her family. Her family, you know, just, they were just such, it sounds like just from my reading, just a real awesome family. So I just don't think she just left. I just don't think that's what happened. What did you think about that Cleveland prostitute? I mean. Okay, her, that's just weird. <laughs> I explained that. I mean, her first name's Judy. She gives the birth, same birth date as Judy. And even Judy's mom thinks it might be her. And I thought about that. I was thinking, you know, by the time, if, if I have my facts, you know, if I have my timeline right. So that would have been 1983 when that happened. Right. And I think it's crazy that the names were the same, but it, you know, it, it there's, you know, duplicate names out there everywhere. The birth date that she would know the birth date. So then I was thinking, was that her birthday too? I, I just really couldn't find a lot around the person, the prostitute in Cleveland. I know probably a, a mom, you know, they always say like a mom knows, a mom knows, but I think this, I think Judy Martin of Kent, you know, university, I think her mom was so broken. She just wanted closure. Right. Um, and I think that's, I think sometimes you're just so broken. You're just reaching for and grasping for a straw. And so as a mom, I, I couldn't, I could appreciate her just wanting to say it's my daughter and let's just go with it. But, you know, obviously it wasn't, but it's just so weird to me that it all kind of fell into place like that. So it, that was yeah. just a, a crazy twist. Yeah. And, and then you got this guy Posey. Okay. So he's guilty of killing two women. Turns out he right. lived in the area when Judy disappeared. It's yeah. so easy to want to jump to a serial killer theory when someone goes missing. But you know, in this case, you know, did Posey or someone like him come across Judy as she's walking home that night? There's no indication it was somebody she knew. So by default, I, I'm going to the serial killer theory. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to go there too. It just makes the most sense. It really does. And it seems to me like all those puzzle pieces just fall into place so quickly. Like the boyfriend, I immediately was like, no, it wasn't him. She didn't walk away. It's obviously not the prostitute. I just... I had to go to, to this guy. So I really tried to dig as deep as I could on him. And first of all, we know his name's William John Posey Jr. But at the time, supposedly he was going by John T. Scorpion, which I would love to know what the T means. But Scorpion to me right there is not, you know, I don't know if that was a, his name on the street. I don't know. Right. Um, it does not an, invoke warm, cozy thoughts. That's no, sure. not at all. In fact, I even looked up what does Scorpio, like, what does that mean? And it means a passionate and dangerous personality. Oh. So to me, I feel like that just kind of encompasses this man. And then he was, he was based on some of the research I did, it almost appears I'm pretty, I feel confident he was a drug dealer. Some, you know, he, he was definitely in that scene of some sort. Then he's only living 10 minutes away from the dorms by drive time. You know, he's right there in the Ken area. Right. He's near the dorms. To your point, he'd already, you know, he had, he was found guilty of the murder in 1976. 
It seems to me if my research is coming together, 1980, he also was involved in a murder of some sort. I couldn't find a lot of information on that. But here's what I found was really interesting. In February of 1980, he was found in a hotel in Mystique, Texas. And that's where they come in and they get him and they're going to start questioning him for these, these murders of 76. And there's a lady in his room by the name of Carol Hepler. And she was from Ohio. And she said she had met him, this gentleman going at that time, maybe even by the name Jim Sinantony. And she said she met him end of December 79 in Ohio. Purdy was heading to Texas. So she just heads out to Texas with him. She doesn't know him. She's only known him for a couple days. And then they just head to Texas. And so, I mean, she clearly she lives. She's not harmed, but she is found. And, you know, it, it seems like he's always on the go. He's here, there. Um, so I, I just thought that was interesting that he, you know, heads out at that time. And there's that this, this lady from Ohio with him that's found in his hotel room. You did your homework. That is some great detail. And we all know two, two kills make you a serial killer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And she's even quoted or in this article I found where they did some, like there was some information around the questioning they did with her when they got to the hotel room. She said she left with nothing. She had just had a miscarriage with his child. She was told she could not touch his suitcase or the contents in there. So she had never looked in them. So it's just that whole piece was just a little weird to me. But that's where I pick up on this third name he was going by. So, I don't know. The other thing I found, which I'm kind of inclined to think this too, you know, he, he was known for the 1976 murder of Iris Brown, who had dumped her body at some point. Right. So, when I was looking into this with the Judy Martin case, um, somebody on Web Sleuth says, but I can't get any further than this one comment. So, where they heard this or, or what, how they make of this, they, someone out there says the day after Judy disappeared, he went to Columbus and could he have dumped her on this? You know, could he have done what he did to the girl from Vermont? But I can't really put together how they know he headed out to Columbus on, you know, May 25th. I can't find anything really more than that. But there was someone on WebSleuth that was so passionate that he was the murderer, and I, I believe he is, that she, not only in 2009, but then later on, maybe in 2014, often uh, sent him several letters to his prison in, North, prison in North Carolina asking him just to confess to this murder, but he never did. Wow. So people are really passionate about it. Iris Brown, they never found her body, right? No. He admitted to it. We know we know that he has successfully hidden a body. Yeah. Yes. So that's a skill set he has. Yes, absolutely. And they do look alike. If you really do look at at a picture of Iris and you look at these pictures of Judy, they're beautiful girls, brunette. They they do resemble each other a lot i I can see the resemblance he's got a type i think so i really do i think so and and we're talking about kent state area there's a lot of land out there tons of i was thinking that too which goes to the whole psychic thing 
you know, the psychic that was brought in and said, you need to go to Towner's Woods and Franklin Township. I mean, that makes sense. It's, it's so wooded out there. The Coggle, you know, Coggle Valley's around the, the, the river. I mean, there's just, yeah. Oh, the Coggle Valley National Park. I mean, we were just talking about the Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard case. And exactly. Was, I mean, 40, well, no, actually, when they found those kids, it had been, what, five years? Yeah, it's been five years. And they were just miles from where they had disappeared. And mm, yeah, that cop in Canton who dumped his wife there. Right, Not right. too long ago. Right, yes. right, right. There is a lot of prime real estate in this area for just foresty rivers and i mean we just we have prime real estate in this area for that right. so yeah so i'm going i'm going with him i'm going with william john jim whichever name he's got many but okay solved now we just need a little evidence That's so right. we can officially put the capper on this one yeah wouldn't that be so great for the and family? to find it breaks her my heart. yeah, yes. I wish yeah for the family find her. we're right on may 24th again it's i mean it's just this, her brother and sister need closure the poor parents never got it and it just needs it needs closure. Yeah, needs I think closure. that's one thing about these cases that we forget. The family, you know, some of them might have passed on, but even even the kids who've never met, it's their like it's their family. It's the name. It's just that it's it's so it's heartbreaking when you listen to these stories and the and when you hear the family speak to it. It's just it's just it's something that needs to be kept alive. And I'm glad to see out on Web Sleuths and different websites that. People are trying to really solve Judy's case. They really are. They're trying every angle they can think of. And I hope that gives the family comfort knowing that her name's still out there. You know, regardless of what Kent State did with the records, which is sad and horrible, it's just good to know that there's just people trying to, to make this right for the All family. Right. And that's really what Iris Brown's family said when I was reading some of their articles. They're like, now we know. You know, it's 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 not the news we wanted, but at least they have closure, right? That they know, but they don't have a body. I just think that the family needs that full closure. Right. So it's really sad for all these families. Well, Teresa, is there anything lo left in your notes here we haven't talked about? No, I think I went through all my notes. I That's think I awesome. got through all of them today. Thank you. Teresa, you did an amazing yeah, job. You were one of our better ones for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> don't don't be surprised if we don't come back to you again. Yeah. Oh gosh, don't tease me. Don't I'm, tease I'm me. Just saying, I'm ready. I'm just saying. I'm ready. Sometimes we might, you know. Since you're in Cargo like, Falls, maybe we'll just have you over and you can, you know, sit in with us. Do it in person. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I'll drink coffee from your coffee mug. It's fantastic. <laughs> don't, now my bucket list just changed. I just upped it. Now I want to do it live with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for being with us tonight. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Hello. My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? 
I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.